We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5, and hopefully we uh, can have a little bit of interaction uh, today, so it's not, uh, not just me teaching the whole time. So if, you, uh, if I ask a few questions, don't let me die up here, okay? Answer, answer the questions, and uh, we'll see how things go. We'll look in Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to look at actually a somewhat long passage of Scripture. We're going to start in verse 15 of Ephesians 5, and we're going to go all the way through 6-9. We're not going to look at it in depth. Uh, rather, I'm going to try to give an overview of Ephesians 5:15 through 6:9. And if you see if you see in 5:15 the very first sentence of 5:15 says be very careful then how you live. Be very careful then how you live. Uh, I would say that we live in a bit of a short-sighted culture, wouldn't you? Uh we don't tend to look long-term. Um, we look, tend to look for immediate gratification. We want something. Uh, we think about how we can get it immediately. Um, and I think you know, ev- evidence of that is the current crisis that we're in economically. I was listening to some, uh, a radio program the other day, and uh, the guy that was, was uh, giving, talking in the radio was talking about the amount of credit card debt that our country carries. And the amount of debt uh, that we carry right now as a country is just absolutely unprecedented. Um, And then we've got the mortgage crisis, and of course I can't explain all of these things, and those of you who are financial gurus uh, could explain it much better than I I can. But uh, the least we can say, I think anyone could say, is that certain people were allowed to buy houses that they probably shouldn't have been lent the money to buy. Um, Some of them didn't even have jobs. Uh, Others have been lent money uh, to an exorbitant amount of money, uh, something that they could never really keep up with as far as their mortgage payments are concerned. So we find ourselves in this crisis because we're short-sighted. We want things now. And if you look on the internet, there's all kinds of things on how to get what you want, how to live a carefree life, how to take advantage of the moment, to live in the now. And it sounds good, but it's not wise. Of course, the alternative is not to worry. The alternative to being carefree is not to worry about everything. Christians aren't supposed to be worrying about everything, but... We are to live carefully, like Ephesians chapter 5 says. We're to live careful lives. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about this morning and the time that we have about what exactly the Bible means when it tells us that we're supposed to be living a careful life. But before I do that, I want to give you a quick little overview of what's going on in the book of Ephesians. And the reason I do that is because we're going to be talking about things that we as Christians are supposed to do. And I always want to make sure when we talk about the things that we're supposed to do that we never talk about that apart from the gospel. Okay, The gospel is central to the things that we're supposed to be doing. If we don't bring the gospel into the things that we're supposed to be doing, 
That's just religion. Religion is do these things so that you can be accepted by God. That's religion. The gospel says you do these things because you have already been accepted by God. And that is a very, very important distinction to make. The the distinction between doing things to be accepted and doing things because you are accepted by God. And Paul, the man who wrote the letter to the Ephesians, models this in the letter. The first three chapters of Ephesians are basically explanation, exposition of the gospel. You start, we read some of the verses in a worship service this morning. But Ephesians chapter 1 starts out with Paul explaining God's purpose from before the world was even created. And what does Ephesians chapter 1 tell us about God's purpose and salvation before the world was even created? God's purpose was to, to call out people out of darkness into light and to save them before he had ever created a single stitch of matter. His intent was always to save, to redeem a people to himself. And he does this, it says several times throughout chapter 1, for the praise of his glorious grace. See, God's intention before the foundation of the world was to glorify himself through the redemption of people who are shaking their fists at him. And doing a work of grace in their heart, where instead of shaking their fists in his face and asserting where we assert our own autonomy, we assert our own authority, we put ourselves in the place of God, where he does a work of grace in our heart through the Spirit, where we bow the knee to God and and come to Christ in repentance and faith. And it's something that God was planning before he created a thing. And then you look at chapter 2, and it talks about the depths of depravity. This is important to the gospel, isn't it? The fact that we're sinful. It talks about the depths of our depravity and says, listen, if you have even, if you've, if you've put your faith in Christ, even the faith that you placed in Christ is a gift that God has given you. You can't earn salvation, obviously. We know that. We can't earn our way to heaven. But even the faith that you place in Christ, even that isn't something that you can take credit for. You didn't place your faith in Christ because you got it and that guy didn't. Because you're somehow more with it. You read the Bible and you understood it and those, that person didn't. What's behind that? The Spirit's gracious work in us, giving us faith to believe the gospel. And it goes on in chapter 2 to talk about uh, the relationship between Jews and Gentiles and the fact that they've been put together into one body. And then we look at chapter 3, further explanation of the gospel. What does the gospel do? It puts us into communities like this one. The gospel isn't just an individual thing. There's a group dimension to the gospel. God doesn't just save us so that we can go along by ourselves, living out our Christian life with blinders on, doing our own thing. When we come to Christ... We are then put into community with other believers where the implications of the gospel are lived out among us as a group. And it says in chapter 3 that God does this because he wants the church to be on display. You ever thought about that? Our local church, Community Baptist Church, God is doing something where in our church, in our body, 
through the gospel where he wants to put us on display before the world and show the world what the rule of God looks like in these little communities. Okay, so we're, this is the gospel. And of course, that's just a brief overview of it. But he spends half of the letter explaining and giving implications of the gospel message. Then, and only then, does he turn to some of the more practical applications of how we are supposed to live. And you may or may not be familiar with this, but in the latter three chapters of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6, you can organize Paul's thoughts around the commands of how we're supposed to walk, how we're supposed to live. And in fact, if you have the NIV translation of the Bible, it actually translates those words, walk, be careful then how you live. So look, for instance, in chapter 4 and verse 1, maybe turn a page back. In 4, in verse 1, it says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He says uh, back in verse 1, to live a life. Okay, that's, it's talk, that's the word walk again, talking about your Christian walk. And so we're supposed to live, first of all, unified. When we're put into these local communities, we're supposed to be unified. Then look at chapter, uh, or look at verse 17 of chapter 4. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live or walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. And then he goes on and says, listen, if you've been changed by the gospel, you're not supposed to walk according or live according to the old way of living. You're supposed to be holy. You're supposed to have a changed life. There's just going to be this practical outworking of the gospel's effect in your heart that is going to change you. And it's going to change everything. He says in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Start with verse 32 of the previous chapter. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk or live in the way of love. Okay, so we've got our third third thing here that we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be unified, we're supposed to be holy, and we are supposed to demonstrate mutual love to the members of the body. Then we go to verses 7 and 8 of chapter 5. Therefore do not be partners with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. And again, a contrast between the way that you lived prior to your conversion and after your conversion. And then we get down to the last one, and the one that we're going to focus our attention on, and that is the exhortation in, in 5.15 to live carefully. He says again, be very careful then how you live. There's a certain amount of intentionality that has to go into living the Christian life. You know as well as I do that the Christian life isn't an automatic thing. That living for God's purposes, 
accomplishing the things that he wants us to accomplish in life, in our relationships, in our workplace, in our church, in whatever it is that you think of, has got to be done intentionally. Uh, It's got to be done with a sense of wisdom. And so Paul is going to explain to us in Ephesians by means of three contrasts of what exactly he means by living carefully. You you say, okay, you're supposed to live carefully, walk carefully, live the Christian life that way. Okay, what do you mean by that? Well, the Bible's going to tell us. And contrasts help us understand things better by telling us the opposite. Not this, but this. Don't do this, but do this. And there are three contrasts found in the following verses that help us understand what the Bible means when it tells us that we're supposed to live our lives with a sense of intentionality. I may have just made that word up. Uh, but that's what, that's, what the, that's what Paul does here. So I'm going to let you try to pick these out for me. And uh, then we'll talk about a little bit, talk about exactly what they mean, and we'll talk about how we can apply them and think about how they, they matter to us in our daily lives. So first of all, when, it, when Paul says that we're supposed to live carefully, in verse 15, what's the first contrast? Bob? Okay. So we're supposed, to, we're supposed to live our lives not as unwise, but as wise. Okay, somebody give me a definition of wisdom from the Scripture. I'm not looking for the definition that you have to have exactly right. But according to Scripture... What does it mean? What is a wise person? According to scripture, give me some thoughts. Pardon me? Okay, that's a very biblical answer. A wise person fears the Lord. It's got a, got a, a respect, a reverential awe of the Lord and the fact that the Lord is the creator and the Lord is in control. Okay, what else? What is a wise person? Go ahead. Okay, a person that's slow to speak doesn't immediately react to situations verbally. What else, what else is biblical wisdom? Go ahead. Okay. The ability to practice skillfully righteousness. Vince, that's good. That's very good. Uh, wisdom, as we would all, all know, isn't just knowledge, right? It's not just Knowing facts about the Bible. Knowing certain things about what God is doing in the world. Wisdom is combining, taking that theoretical knowledge and adding practice to it. Becoming skillful in the use of that knowledge. So the Bible doesn't tell us about every decision that we're supposed to make, about every kind of thing that we're going to encounter in life. It doesn't lay exact guidelines out for every single thing that you will face. Where should, what, how should I buy? Where should I send my kids to school? You know, these kinds of things. The Bible doesn't spell everything out for us. But the Bible does, because it is sufficient for everything that we need in life, the Bible does make us wise. It can equip us with the information that we need to know about, first of all, the character of God, what He's like, what He likes the things that please him, the things that don't please him. And it tells us about what God is doing in the world, and it equips us, as we get to know Revelation more and more, it equips us to make wise decisions. 
Okay, so you've got a fool on the other hand. And a fool is not just a person, is not a person who just doesn't have all the information. Have you ever known people that have known a lot about something? Uh, we say, we get, there's lots of different ways of putting it, but you know, they know a lot, but they don't have a lick of sense. And that can be us as well when it comes to the Bible. You can be able to reel off the books in order. You can say what's in this chapter and what's in this chapter, but we've all met people who have never gotten down to the, to the application of making wise decisions in their lives and letting the Bible actually guide their paths. Look at Proverbs 4. You can keep your finger here in Ephesians 5, but flip over to Proverbs 4, 11 to 14. I want to show you that the Old Testament is in complete agreement with what we're saying here, and it carries a lot of the same ideas. Proverbs 4.11, I instruct you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. You notice we've been talking about how you walk all the way through the Ephesians, and here in Proverbs we find that same kind of imagery, the Christian life as a pathway. And your need and my need to give careful attention to how we walk that path. So we need to do that wisely <clears throat> and not as one who is unwise. And fools are people who, fools again, are people not just who don't have the information, but who aren't applying the information that they have and aren't trying to make wise decisions. And this is a skill, isn't it? This is something that takes time. As you get to know God more and more, as you come, become more and more familiar with God's word, you become more and more skillful at living wisely. And this is one of the great things about why we live in community, because we're all at different parts uh, of, the, of the timeline and skill level, and so we can rely on one another to live wisely. Let's look over at Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5 on our way back to 5.15. Colossians 4 and verse 5. And I'm going to read to you from 5.15 in Ephesians again says in, in verse 16, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Live carefully, not as a fool, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Does somebody have Colossians 4 or 5? Is somebody there? Can, you, can somebody read that? Okay. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Specifically there in Colossians chapter 4, this making the most of every opportunity is talking about our role in evangelism. And so we've got people around us that we come in contact with all the time that don't know the Lord or aren't familiar with the gospel. And we're supposed to be wise, looking for opportunities to share the gospel with them. We're supposed to be guarding our testimonies, guarding the way that we walk, showing them that, there's a, that the gospel has made a difference in our lives. And we've got a somewhat similar idea here in Ephesians 5. 
you're going to have to, if you're going to live carefully, and you can go back to Ephesians 5 now, if you're going to live carefully, if you're going to live intentionally, then you're going to have to make the most of every opportunity. What do we mean by that? What's another way of stating it? I would put it this way. We live with a sense of urgency. We live with a sense of urgency. We don't kind of float through life. The gospel has changed all of that. There are things that God is doing in the world. There is a mission, as as Pastor Ken has told us several times, over and over again, tells us to get on point with the mission. There's a mission that God has given us. But we need to make the most of every opportunity. We, we need to make the most of every opportunity and live with a sense of urgency because we re- recognize the relative briefness of our lives. The Bible says elsewhere that our lives are vapor. They're mist. Our lives are here and they're gone. And what we don't want to do as Christians is get to the end of our lives and look back and say, What did I spend my time doing? And so if you have been changed by the gospel, then you and I must live with a sense of urgency, realizing that we only have a brief time to fulfill God's purposes for us and we'll be gone. And we don't want to waste the time that we've been given. Why do we we need to make the most of our time? says here in our text because the days are evil what does that mean what do you think that means because the days are evil why do we make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil any any ideas there one idea all right go ahead Okay, that's a good point. And for those of you who didn't hear him, he's saying the opposite of making the best use of our time is evil. Okay, a great point. Any other ideas for what it means? Josh? Okay. Okay, good, good. Any other thoughts there? Okay, Satan isn't going to stop doing what he's doing. That's true. Tony? Right. Right. And if you look at, a, at, a, at chapter 2, in verse 2, I'll start in verse 1. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. We recognize that though Christ has accomplished his work of redemption, there's a future aspect in which all things are going to be brought under the headship of Christ. It says that in chapter 1. 
But right now, Satan and our flesh, our sinful nature and our sinful desires are very much at work in this age. And so we are going to have to do everything that we can to remind ourselves of the shortness of the time that we have and, and the, the fact that we need to make the most of the opportunities that we're given, not squander the time. Okay, so that's the first part of, of, of living wisely, living carefully. Uh, let's look at the second contrast. The second contrast in, is in verse 17. What is that contrast? It's very similar to the first one. It's just got a slight, slight different aspect to it. Okay, so a foolish person seeking their own self-gratification, what's the alternative then? What's the contrast to that? Don't seek your own self-gratification, but, okay, seek God's will. Seek God's will. So that's the second contrast. When, when Paul says, live carefully, he says, don't be unwise, but be wise. Don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And so we have another contrast between a foolish way of living and a wise way of living. Now, the wisdom and understanding God's will here isn't just about what we generally think when, we, when we're thinking about understanding God's will, the big decisions of life and what we're supposed to be doing. Remember how we talked about the explanation of the gospel in the first three chapters? The explanation of the gospel, especially in chapter 1, is... Uh, is, is is God sharing with us his will. What he was doing before the foundation of the world. And what he is doing right now. And what he ultimately intends to do. And why he is doing it for his glory. All of that is explanation of God's will. So let's look briefly at, at a couple of specific things in chapter 1 that tell us what God's will is. In 1... Verses 7 and 8, it says, and 9, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on the earth under Christ. Okay, so what's the statement of God's will in those verses? It's a mystery that's been reve- now been revealed to us. What is it? It's just lines from the verses. Any ideas? Okay. Well, look at verse 10. It says in verse 9, he's made known to us the mystery of his will. In verse 10, he says, when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. God has this, this plan of cosmic proportions where sin has entered the world through the fall. We see that in the opening chapters of Genesis. Ever since that point, 
God has a plan to redeem, to purchase, to recreate, to make all things new again. And he's doing that individually in our lives by changing us in the gospel. But his plan is even bigger than me and you. It's even bigger than our local congregation. His plan is even bigger than the congregations in our community or in our state, or in our country, or in the world, he's got this plan of cosmic proportions where the world is going to be made right again. The world is, the world is, is afflicted by sin. And there are bad things happening, horrible atrocities happening. Things are the, not the way they should be. But don't worry, it's going to be fixed. In fact, Jesus' death and resurrection is a foretaste of God's power being demonstrated in Christ now being demonstrated in us being changed by the gospel and ultimately going to be demonstrated on a global, more than even global, cosmic level. Everything is going to be put under the headship of Christ and he is going to rule in perfect justice, perfect love, perfect harmony. All things will be unified. Everything will be as it should. Wow. That's incredible. We see more about the wisdom of God in chapter 1. It says, uh, let me figure out what, what, what verses I want to read. How about 17? I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people and his incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And we could go on. Okay, so God is revealing to us his will, his intention, his wisdom, why he has done what he has done. So let's hit pause here for a second because I said it. I said we're in the practical stuff right now, right? You know, we're supposed to not live unwisely, but we're supposed to live. We're supposed to understand what the Lord's will is. So maybe you say, "Well, okay, that's great. That stuff that you just read me in chapter one, but how does that help me in my life?" Good question. How does that help me in my life? Give me some answers. Think about it. Why is that not just theoretical knowledge? Go ahead. Okay. 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 Good. Good. Go ahead. Right. Okay. Good. I should probably start repeating these things. So the next one I'll start repeating. Any other ideas? Okay, Vince? Okay. Good. It, God tells us what pleases him so, so we can align our motives to that. Any other thoughts? All right, Josh. Okay. 
Okay, yeah. Uh, to paraphrase or rephrase what he just said, we ultimately know that our work is not in vain. Have you ever felt like what you were doing was for nothing? It's not for nothing. God, the architect, has graciously included our work in his plan and graciously uses us as the means to accomplish his ends. Okay, so it's important to know. That's something that's important to know. That's going to that's gonna motivate you, right? Okay, it talks about, in verse 20, it talks about uh, the power that exerted Christ from the dead is this... The, the great power for us who believe in verse 19 is the same power that, it, that, was, that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Okay, that has everything to do with our lives right now. Are you struggling against sin? The answer is yes. <laughs> and I try not to put you down, but the answer is yes. <laughs> you are struggling with sin. Some of you more than others. <laughs> but no, we are struggling with sin. And sometimes, I don't know if you've felt this way, but I felt with certain sins is I cannot help but do this. There is no way I'm going to get by this. This sin has power over me. What does the gospel say? The gospel says the power of sin in your life has been broken. The gospel says the same power that raised a man from the dead is being exerted in each one of our lives. And so we don't face our sin as, as, it, ha- as it must have a controlling influence in our lives. We face our sin recognizing that, yes, I am struggling with this. Yes, I am falling more than I want. But this sin is ultimately not going to win. It can't beat me because it does not have the power that Christ has. You understand what I'm saying here? When when we start thinking about the implications of the gospel, we don't just read over the verses, like verses 17 and 18, and, and just, and just see that, that Christ, okay, Christ is ruling and, and he was raised from the dead and I don't really know how this connects with my life. It has everything to do with my life. So, live carefully, not as a foolish person, but as a wise person who is making every effort to understand what the will of the Lord is as it is revealed in Scripture, and then not just understand it, not just informationally, but to, to, to apply it and to realize that this stuff that seems kind of theoretical really meets my day-to-day life. And so I need to live with this sense of urgency. I know that I have a family and I'm only going to have so much opportunity to influence my children. I have people that I work with. I will only have so long to be involved in their lives. I have this church of which I am a part. I will not be a member of this church forever. I won't have very long, I can't put off working and serving in the church until I've retired. When I have more time, the time is now. And wise people who have been changed and whose minds have been gripped by the grace that they've received are going to live with that sense of urgency. 
And they're going to do everything that they can. We're going to do everything that we can to understand what the Lord's will is and apply it. Okay, so the third contrast. Just got a few minutes to cover this. The third contrast then. What's the third contrast? It's found in verse 18. It's like, don't do this, but do this. Okay. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. This is our third indicator that helps us understand what Paul means when he tells us that we're supposed to live carefully, that we're supposed to live intentionally. You can't live, just as you cannot live an intentional, careful life if you are under the influence of something like alcohol, you need to be under the influence of the Spirit. And the contrast here isn't like some churches where don't be drunk with wine, but get drunk with the Spirit. And you let go to the Spirit, and the Spirit takes control of you, much like alcohol takes control of you. And once you surrender to that and let go to that, the Spirit does the stuff for you. Okay, There, there, are, there are lots of good people that love Jesus that teach that. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. What I think Paul is talking about here when he tells them to be filled with the Spirit is he is the idea of control. A person who is living carefully and intentionally is going to their life is going to be characterized by the control of the Spirit. And how does the Spirit control us? The Spirit controls us through the Word. The Spirit gives us the ability, the ability because we have the indwelling Spirit within us, gives us the the power through the Word to follow, to walk in step with the Spirit. Galatians says that we're supposed to keep in step with the Spirit, walk in lockstep with the Spirit. And so just as a person who we would say if a person was filled with rage, a person is controlled by rage. It's the dominating influence in their lives. For a believer, the spirit should be the dominating influence or force or control in our lives. And it's not a passive control where we just let go and the spirit does it through us. It's a control, it's a control of which we have a part, just like sanctification is. We have a role in sanctification. We need to, we, we need to be fighting against sin. And it's the same thing with the spirit. We have a role. We need to be following the step that the Spirit, the trajectory of life that the Spirit lays out for us in the Scriptures. Okay, so if we're supposed to be controlled by the Spirit, if that's that's an example of what uh, intentional, careful living is going to look like, what, what what, what are some ways that we would know that we are filled by the Spirit? Well, there's ways. Okay, what's the first, what's the first way? There's three ways where we're going to know that we're controlled by the Spirit or filled with the Spirit. And this is an exhaustive list. But what's the first one? Okay, there's going to be a verbal aspect. We're going to be speaking to each other and singing to God. Uh, It says in... uh, Oh, wrong page. It says, uh, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit or spiritual songs sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. You know, we're going to to speak to one another in scriptural ways that are helpful, if I could put it that way. 
So there's going to be a, if we're controlled by the Spirit, there's going to be a horizontal aspect and there's going to be a vertical aspect. The vertical aspect is we're going to be responding to God, singing praise to Him. The horizontal aspect is that we are going to be scripturally speaking and singing to one another in ways that are informed by Scripture and that are helpful. That's an example of a person that is being controlled by the Spirit. What's the second thing? Okay. Thanksgiving. Okay, so there's a, there's a verbal aspect. There's a mental aspect. The mental aspect of a person who is controlled by the Spirit is they are going to be give, giving thanks in everything, in all situations. That's a tough one, isn't it? But because, and this goes back to the gospel again, the gospel allows us to be thankful for everything in every situation. Because the gospel t- gives us hope, not in ourselves, not in our situa- situation, not in our life circumstances, not in the saviors that we've set up for ourselves. The gospel gives us Jesus. And if you've got Jesus, you don't need any of those other things. And you're not looking for satisfaction in any of those other things. And so you truly can give thanks in all things in every situation. The only person that can give thanks in every situation is a person that's controlled by the Spirit. If we're not thankful people, we are not controlled by the Spirit. Okay, the last thing. And we've got a minute, so I'll make it a minute. What's the last thing here? What's that? Okay, a cooperative spirit. That's a good way of putting it. So we've got, there's a verbal aspect, there's a mental aspect, and then we've got a relational or a cooperative aspect. Okay, relationally, people that are going to be, that are controlled by the spirit are, as this, as our text says, going to be mutually submissive to one another. Okay, there's a, that's a tough one. So what is it, give me an example uh, before we go of how we can be mutually submissive to one another when we gather as a, as a body. Any ideas what that means, how we can do it? Okay, serving each other. What else? Vince, did you ha- raise your hand? No? Okay, sorry. Got a little excited there, seeing the hands. Dan? Okay, we put others' needs before our, our own. I mean, obviously you guys are getting it, but the question... So oh, did you want to say, Vince? Okay, we show appreciation for those who are in authority over us. Okay, so you get what I'm saying. But a person that's controlled by the Spirit is going to be, there's going to be a relational aspect where we are mutually submissive to one another. Where we are expecting the ministry, where I'm expecting ministry from you to me, and you are expecting and receptive ministry from me to you. And that could come in the form of exhortation. That could come in the form of admonition. Okay? That's what, that's the real test of mutual submission. When somebody that I don't think has the right to say something to me or point out something to me does it, are, am I controlled by the Spirit? <laughs> am I gonna b- submit myself to the, to the word from the Lord that that person is giving me? Okay, well we, we don't have time to go on. Uh, but if you look in the, in the later chat, in the first verses of chapter six, there are a bunch of examples of submission. We've got family, family examples of submission. We've got work examples. We've got children. We've got all kinds of stuff. 
and uh, we don't have time to get to it. But hopefully, uh, hopefully this will be helpful to you to think about the implications of living carefully with a sense of urgency as wise people changed by the gospel. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for the time we're able to spend together. Uh, I pray for each believer here that you would... Uh, that you would help us to be very careful how we live, recognize that we live as, as having very little time. And so I pray that you'd help us to live wisely and live for your purposes. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.